0: Two, season two, episode four of Mixtape with Scott. We have a great guest today on the show who I'm excited to introduce to you. But before I do, we have to go through our weekly liturgy about the role of stories in our lives. I don't make the rules. I'm obligated. This is handed down to me by the president of the United States each week to read this line from Sue Johnson's excellent book, Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. Uh, as, it, as, doctor, as, professor, as President Biden believes that this will help us better understand what this podcast is about. We use stories to make sense of our lives. We use stories as models to guide us in the future. We shape stories and then stories shape us. Mixtape with Scott is a podcast devoted to listening to the personal stories of economists, scientists, and authors. As you listen to their stories, as as you pay attention and you're present and you're curious, my hope is that you hear the echoes, weirdly enough, of your own story. Sometimes it's in the very, very, very specific stories of other people that we somehow hear the more general stories of all people. So my hope is that you will feel a sense of connection to the guests today, as well as come away with a story that helps you make sense of your own life, maybe even have a model to help you navigate that life as well. So with that said, let me warmly introduce uh, Dr. Claire Brown. Dr. Claire Brown is a labor economist at UC Berkeley. She's had a fascinating career uh, from her early work on gender discrimination in labor markets to her focus on integrating economics and engineering at UC Berkeley to more recent work on Buddhism and economics, and even more. Uh, she is uh, also an author on a book about Buddhism and economics that I would highly encourage that you check out. It was great having a chance to meet her and learn more about her, and I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. I'm the host, Scott Cunningham, this is The Mixtape with Scott, season two. Well, we are now kicking off season two of The Mixtape with Scott, episode one, and uh, and it is an interview with a um, person that I have never spoken to before, uh, but I've been looking forward to this interview for uh, probably a month at least, uh, Dr. Claire Brown. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's great to join you. Thanks for asking me.
0: But for the sake of the, the listener, can you tell me your, you've already, I said your name, but can you tell me your name, your title, and uh, who you're, sort of pays your paycheck and where you live?
1: (laughs) Okay. So I'm Claire Brown and I'm an economics professor at UC Berkeley. And I live in Richmond, California. Actually, it's called Point Richmond, California. And just to let you know, I live not that far from a Chevron refinery. Mm. That actually influences me quite a bit.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Wait, so you're not near Berkeley? How long does it take you to get to Berkeley? to get to campus
1: 15 minutes oh okay there's a there's a richmond stop and there's a berkeley stop on bart so it's easy to take BART, and bart's like 12 minutes
0: oh okay okay so are you close to are you where's the water relative to where you live
1: uh it's it's out my window
0: oh you can see the water right now
1: yeah i'm by the bay and (laughs) it's like okay Um, that's one of the charms of living here. It's also a very diverse community, which I like. So it's got plenty of professors, but it's got plenty of artists and all kinds of people.
0: Mm. How How many years have you lived there? Well,
1: I moved here in about 1990.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. 1990. Okay. Well, we'll get into that. Okay. So, so where did you grow up before we start getting into your career? Tell me where you grew up.
1: Okay, well, this is also a big part of my story, because I grew up in Tampa, Florida, when it was, it was practicing apartheid. We had white people that ran the city and had all the wealth, um, and were in charge. And then mm-hmm. we had Cubans who were the tobacco workers, because at that point, that was Tampa's major industry,
2: mm-hmm. was
1: making Cuban cigars.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then we also, of course, had African- Americans that we called Negroes who were Mm. black and all three of those groups were segregated. Yeah. And they had different schools. If you went to the grocery store with your nanny who was black, um, you would have two water fountains at the grocery store. One would say Negro and one would say white. And it was that way everywhere, the movie theaters, everywhere you go, the schools were completely segregated. It Mm. was really, I realized early on because my, the the woman who took care of me, Nazarene, she really made it clear to me in a very loving, kind way, how her life was real different from mine because she wasn't white. Mm. And um, I learned so much from her that it really enabled me to understand discrimination at a very early age. Hey, that's why I became an economist, I think. And I studied discrimination. Um, be, I blow it all to Nazarene. And I'm so grateful to her for caring for me in mm. a way that really helped me understand her life, my life, and why it was so different.
0: Mm. How old were you? When, what kind of conversations did she have with you as a child? That were say that were sort of salient about.
1: Oh, okay. so i would walk down to meet her at the bus stop which is a half a block from my house and she'd hop off and i'd say nazarene why are you always in the back of the bus why don't you sit up front it'd be yeah. easier to get off and she'd say oh i'm not allowed up front only white people can sit up front and and negroes have to sit in the back i said oh my gosh and a little kid even i thought that's ridiculous yeah and then I would go to see a movie like, you know, Alice in Wonderland. And I'd say, oh, Nazarene, I saw the best movie. you got to go see it. It's Alice in Wonderland. And she'd say, oh, Claire, I'd like to see that movie, but I can't because the the Negro Theater doesn't show any movies like that. Only mm-hmm. the one. They don't let us in. So sometime, I mean, it's just isn't a very nice, very straightforward way. This is how it is. This is life. Um, and... So as a little girl, I can say, that's, that's awful. That's terrible. You should be able to go to the movies. We should be able to ride together on the bus. We should be able to do all these things together. And it was not hard, even when you're eight years old, to understand discrimination and how, how unfair it was.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you felt that feeling of unfairness, even as a little bitty kid?
1: Oh, I felt it really deeply mm. and as I grew up and saw it more and more because it hadn't changed even when I was 16. Uh. The system was still in full force. I, to be honest, Scott, I couldn't wait to get out of Tampa. <laughs> so yeah. I couldn't wait to leave the South Um, mm. because of that. It was just yeah. too difficult.
0: Right, right. So when you, when you were in high school, what were your interests? What were you, what were you, what did you like to do? And what was your sort of school? What was your school experience like?
1: Well, I was at the public white high school. And, um, to be honest, it was a terrible education, which I really understood when I went off to college at Wellesley. And Mm -hmm. that's when actually the, the women's colleges and the men's colleges were still segregated (laughs) by by gender. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was like, well, the problem was school was too easy, so I could do it real quickly. I was Val Victorian, but you sort of had to hide that, although I didn't I just oh uh, well, I like school, I do my work, um, I took the hardest classes I could, but none of them were hard, and right. I, I never wrote a paper but
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it made and I loved math and math, so when I went off to college, I was a math major because math was simple. It was easy. It was fun. Yeah. Um, and my, my first English, I couldn't do English. I <laughs> realized because I'd never done English. Um, we'd mm-hmm. never sort or critiqued books. So my first paper in the English class, the professor called me and says, we have a problem. We got to figure out how to get you writing well enough that I can give you a C.
0: <laughs> was that freshman year? That was at Wellesley.
1: Freshman year. Yeah. And So I was in shock because, of course, I because <laughs> like, you were a Victorian. Also, see in high school, I knew you had to like be popular or you know get along. Yeah. I had a great group of what we call girlfriends, and we're still friends today. But, oh, that's great! But I was so I was a cheerleader. Um, You know, I did I did the social things that you're. Right. But to be honest, I never felt comfortable. <laughs> I love doing schoolwork, and I love yeah. doing math. And I wished we'd had more schoolwork to do.
0: Right. So, what you get to Wellesley, like what, like sixty four?
1: Yes, actually, that's true. I was class of sixty four high school, and then class of sixty eight at Wellesley.
0: Okay, so you get well,
1: there. Are different from Hillary <laughs> Clinton?
0: You were y'all there at the same time? Wait.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Were, did y'all know each other?
1: Well, she crossed everybody's path, but we weren't in the same dorm. Yeah. Uh, And she's a 1968
0: Wellesley graduate also.
1: No, no. She was one year apart.
0: One year apart. Okay. 67.
1: Uh, Yeah. No, I think she was 69. She came after me, one year after Mm me. Um, But she was, she was woman around campus. She knew everybody. She was Mm -hmm. already political she ran for office and won, um, you know, college offices, but I, I me, mean, no, 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 I'm busy doing proofs, math proofs. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so you get there, it's like, so you're there during a pretty tumultuous political time in American history, and you already have this kind of, uh, I don't know, um, this value system. That's like uh, that, that, that's that's really sensitive to injustice. So what was it like for you, you know, uh, being, you know, so serious about your about your schoolwork, but that also the, the these like, you know, civil rights kind of events are happening around you?
1: Right. Yeah. You know, I was so lucky, Scott, to be there with with two revolutions going on from a social viewpoint. One was race, and the other was feminist. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, we had the anti-war protesting. So there was lots of protesting, and I learned a huge amount. That really helped my learning about society, how it works, um, and all the different ways that power sort of uh, rules people's lives. Right. it made me, and it's one of the things is I did because of all of this, I actually grow sort of bored with math because- You did? Yeah, well, there are hardly any math majors. There were like four mm. of us. Mm. And the, and i go out in my dorm into the common area and my friends would be having these great discussions. Then they were all econ majors.
2: Mm.
1: <laughs> and econ was like the largest major at Wellesley. And I'm thinking, you know, I better go take economics. This sounds really interesting. And Mm. so I started taking economics, um, but that went until my junior year and because I had to get rid of all my requirements and so forth, um, and which I had a lot, nothing like AP from where I came from. Yeah. So I fell in love with economics. It was like, oh, wow, this is so interesting. So I took as much econ as I could and I graduated Um, and I decided I wanted to be an economist.
0: Who, who are some? Are there some some economists that that taught you at Wellesley that you sort of remember really fondly? That 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 some of us should would be good to know their names.
1: Yeah, the person who was really a great mentor to all all the students was Carolyn Shaw Bell, mm. and she really encouraged women to go on in economics, um, and she really sort of understood what people's different skills and talents were and yeah. work with them. And so I got to know her quite well. And she's, she stayed in touch with me after I left.
0: Mm. What did she teach? What was her area?
1: Oh my gosh. What Carolyn Shaw Bell knew everything. Uh, <laughs> I, <don't, laughs> I don't remember what class she taught. I, whoops, sorry. <laughs> when
0: did you, when did you get your first taste of labor economics? Was it at Wellesley? no, no. no.
1: I went to graduate school, so I was married, okay. Okay. Uh, we moved down to DC um, where my husband lived and he was an attorney, um, he graduated from Harvard, I got out of Wellesley, we moved to D- we were married, moved to DC and I had a job for one year as a research assistant and I looked around, and I said, oh, well, what's the next step? So how do you progress to be, you know, have more power and work?
0: Hmm. And so,
1: and I looked around and the only thing you could do is go to graduate school. There did were no. You,
0: did you ever think about law school? I could imagine law school was something that crossed your mind.
1: I did because I came from a family of, of lawyers. Okay. So forth. I did. And I realized early on, Scott, that I hated controversy. It's like I didn't yeah. do all well the controversy.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and I didn't have the personality. I'm much better off sitting in the library working.
0: Yeah. 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 So you could see that. You could tell your husband was a lawyer. Your parents have been lawyers. You could sort of feel that that wasn't the right fit, even though like I could imagine someone with this sort of interest in social justice and even labor topics going and becoming a lawyer, but you, you could, you felt like it was graduate school in economics.
1: Yeah. Because actually in those days, we all wanted to change the world and improve the world and economics was considered a really critical tool. Mm. Now later on, I of course learned as I was working on inequality for decades along with my colleagues at Berkeley and MIT especially, Mm. we we knew how to reduce inequality. We knew the policies, we we knew the research, the policies, we knew what to do, and we were we were ignored. The politicians ignored us. And so while we're working in the 70s and 80s on reducing inequality mm-hmm. and making the world a more just and fair place inequality was skyrocketing yeah so so, you, so
0: this is like so you graduate from wellesley 68 you take a year to become an ra so we're, we're talking this movement into the 70s it's really a big you're watching so yeah i'm just kind of wanting to set in my mind what you're saying the you're watching a lot of major changes to sort of workers and poor people can you tell me a little bit about it
1: yeah so that was that was actually pretty exciting but um it wasn't going fast enough it was Mm. just it was just starting because remember the civil rights act all that uh the the um the book the number one the the, sort of the grandmother of all books about feminism was written in
2: 1968
1: Mm -hmm. and So in the Civil Rights Act and the Equal Pay Act, they weren't passed until the early 70s. So we were just seeing this starting. And I thought economics would be a great way to really help push it. So, um, and in the DC area, the best graduate school in economics was the University of Maryland. So I applied there and got in, um, and there were two women in my class. But boy, was I ever lucky again. Uh, Barbara Bergman was on the faculty, mm-hmm. and she was working on discrimination and inequality, and and had a big grant, so I got to go work for her, and I learned a lot working for her in many ways. And so I'd gone into graduate school working, actually, in math econ, um, and not not worried, not thinking about labor, but I ended up, and I never took labor, because we didn't really have a labor economist
0: at and, maryland you didn't
1: no even
0: though dr bergman dr bergman wasn't wouldn't you wouldn't have considered her a labor economist even though she's she working a-
1: no she didn't call herself a labor economist
0: how'd she how would she have described herself
1: she would say i work on um i work on micro topics of how to improve people's lives and mm. she didn't really and she would teach um courses on policy on econometrics on sort of how to link uh how to set up a project to do research that would result in policy
0: right right and so she
1: she was well connected to with brookings as was charlie i worked with charlie schultz too and he was at brookings yeah and he of course was more the macro person so
0: what do you write your dissertation on
1: oh labor market discrimination
0: so you wanted to do labor. You, you, were, you were very much interested in that topic. Were you an outlier amongst your classmates working on something in labor without that strong labor, you know, support system?
1: I didn't really think of it as labor because Barbara Bergman didn't or no one else did. We I thought see. about how to do a research project on a major social problem and that um, you can relate the research to changing how the i in this case labor markets work. Mm-hmm. And so my dissertation is why do unemployment rates vary by race and sex?
0: Uh-huh. Why do unemployment rates vary by race and sex? That's right. what it was. It was an ex it was so you document it. Okay, so keep going. I'm sorry.
1: Right. No, so it was a it was a segmented labor market study. Mm. And at that time, Scott, a lot of people didn't believe in segmented labor markets.
0: Right. Right. They had this kind of perfect competition model of labor markets where the all the wages should be equal. I mean, I guess like you is that is that because uh Claire, the 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 microdata isn't widely out yet? Is there something about it that's just like people just don't like what's the cause of that?
1: Hey, hey, we, we just went up we were just getting computers. Right. Oh, you're too young to know that. Yeah. So my dissertation was on key punch cards. You have to key punch the cards to get the data in to write your program and you carry them over every night, these big boxes of cards and give them to the computer operation people to run for you that night. And you really hope they don't mess your cards up. Hmm. Um,
0: that's a coding error back then. They, they, they drop your, they drop you
1: the box. Card anything. If the card doesn't flow in yeah. right, you're right. out. Of it. It's like yeah. one more day wasted.
0: Well, so what are you doing? Are you like literally like punching you? Like you're, you're coding by like punching stuff or what?
1: No, no, no. Oh, wow! <laughs> I wish I had a photo I could show you. No, it was called a key punch machine. So you uh-huh. put, cards, you put, you put it in a stack of cards and then you type and the machine, uh, punches it for you.
0: Okay. Okay. Okay, so you got this. So you're gonna dot so so even just documenting the labor market differences by race and gender itself is kind of like noteworthy.
1: That, that's right. That was a huge task. It's just yeah. collecting the data and then you analyze it and you show how look there's lack of mobility provided between. Male jobs and female jobs, or white jobs and black jobs. And so you can actually, you document and then you analyze the flow.
2: Mm.
1: um, But once again, we didn't have the data that they had much later on. Mm
0: -hmm. What data set did you use for that dissertation?
1: (laughs) Who knows? Probably probably some form of data from the Department of Labor. I remember being in touch with the BLS a lot.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So you do this, you do this topic and, and it's, but you're also trying to explain the differences. So what was sort of your key? What were some of your, your theoretical reasons for why you thought this was not why this gap was staying as an equilibrium?
1: Well, because what I did was I set up two models. One is a free labor market model
0: yeah.
1: that people have access to jobs just based on merit and so forth. And mm. you, would, you would get one kind of outcome that you could then look and see. And then you'd have a segmented labor market model where you would actually have um, different markets that within themselves act like free or competitive markets. But the line into that market is only women, mm-hmm. or only, men or only black women or only black men. Right. And you can actually, given that you could get enough data, which I was able to from the Department of Labor, um, set it up and then analyze the flows in and out and from what you would expect hey in a free market model you you have one model i mean one market it just had one market and yeah. you're putting everybody in line and you said well that's really interesting that the women end up over here and the white men over there and they, i mean you can see real clearly where in this one market people are still flowing into these segregated slots
0: you were watching not just differences in wages, but sorting.
1: Oh, totally sorting. And so you'd say, and that's why, and then actually what I was, this is where I was not so lucky. I was born at the wrong time and that Gary Becker came along and said, well, of course, that's what people want. That's just their preferences. Right. That white women want to be school teachers and secretaries and nurses and librarians, and they don't want to do anything else. That's what they you, like.
0: How'd that make you feel when he said that kind of thing?
1: Made me feel like he didn't know enough,
0: right? Right.
1: He had way too much power given his lack of understanding what women or blacks want.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It
1: actually made me, of course, it made me angry. So more, but um, mm-hmm.
0: I mean, what would you say back to him? It's so hard when somebody says that because you're kind of like you're stuck, right? You don't really know, like, what's the evidence that I would, like, what do I got to get survey evidence about how I actually do wish I had a different job? Or what would you say back to him?
1: I'd say, you know, let's look at it. If you look at it as a segment in labor market, yeah. you actually can very easily understand what's happening and what the choices are and how people are responding to the choices available to them. And that actually maps out quite well with data. Mm-hmm. And that that model works yeah with the data and actually looking at one big large labor market you're just end up saying well why would people want that crappy job is it really <laughs> is it really what black women want to do clean houses and clean toilets all day or take care of kids and that's all they want to do right. right but you know it's hard to change people when they're at the top of the heap
0: Sure. Sure. So wait, what did you, was this your job market paper? Would you like, did you like have an interview at Columbia or something like that? Where Becker was there?
1: Oh yeah. So I had, it was my job market paper and Berkeley invited me out and they actually loved it. So I knew Berkeley was the place for me, even though, um, I left my husband and left (laughs) and went to Berkeley, but I went to John.
0: He stayed in DC.
1: Yeah. He stayed in DC and, uh, I went to Johns Hopkins. Oh, you did for an interview, and they hated my work. They mm. said they don't see how you could possibly even set up a model with segmented labor markets. They don't exist.
0: Theoretically?
1: Oh there yeah, a, they-
0: there wasn't a model. There wasn't some segmented. I actually don't know this literature very well. I I usually just sort of can I usually tell it the stories of it, but but I didn't know that there's not a the, there's not a theoretical tradition of these segmented labor markets?
1: Oh, there is, there is, but ideologically, it's amazing. How uh, yeah. I, right. You're not supposed to be, ide ide ideologues, but trust me, Johns Hopkins, they said, we only want free market economists here. Right. Right. Like, Oh, yeah. okay. Then I'm not the person for you. And I just, yeah. I just left.
0: It's funny, isn't it? Because like, I think to, to a non-economist that would hear that they would go, well, you know, for what's free market economics have to do with this segmented labor market race, race inequality. It's like, it's funny. I mean, like how deep economists have understood that, you know, a lot of things shouldn't exist if that free market, you know, or if that, if these things move into a certain kind of equilibrium, a lot of things around us shouldn't even exist at all. But you know,
1: well, one of the things you need to understand from a labor viewpoint if you study the history is that the institutionalist had the power and the they were in charge um mm. throughout the thirties and forties and it, it, even before because there was Thorston Veblen who yeah. wasn't a socialist and then was treated as a sociologist, but there was commons um and his Wisconsin school. And they did great work. And actually, because of their work, we have unemployment insurance and Social Security from the, mm. from the Wisconsin School in the Depression. And so institutions mattered. And yeah. institutions would structure markets. Right. And so I didn't have any trouble with that. I was taught that. I learned that. I knew the literature. I knew the history. But it, the Chicago School really changed that. They yeah. came. They said, No. No, institutions can be explained just by market forces. Right. You don't need institutions. They're not structuring markets. Uh, only the free market. There, there's nothing. They actually would go on so far as say, nothing structuring markets, although I think we all know today we're yeah. structuring markets. Right. This is structuring and government structuring, but markets are structured.
0: Who was at Berkeley when you do that interview? Who is it that, who is it that really struck your eye? that caught your eye that you were like, I want to, I want to work with these people.
1: Oh, well, I was really lucky there because George Akerlof picked me up at the airport.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. What was he an assistant professor or was he already older than that?
1: He, he had tenure by then, but he had not yet had his lemons article published. It oh. turned down. Yeah. The day I arrived was the day the JPE accepted his lemons paper.
0: Well, I thought he went so to the QJ.
1: Everybody was in a great mood. They were celebrating. They were happy, and George was in a great mood. Yeah, um, and he, of course, <laughs> really liked my work because he believed in institutions and structuring markets. And yeah, and so I met with him, and then um, quite a few people were there that that really liked my work, but not mm. everyone course um
0: sure
1: but always george akerlof was important to me and we're still in touch
0: mm. Mm. um so you get you get to so i have this question now i kind of have like questions about labor i want have like a bunch of different questions so i'm teaching this like i'm teaching this history of economic thought class um and i'm just loving it uh so much but um I was kind of wondering do you feel like you are you like identify like you feel a certain amount of kinship with the labor economists when I say something like that does that sort of feel like you're like those are my people or is like no I don't really I don't think in those words those ways
1: oh oh yeah I the thing is is that there's no such thing as the labor economist, to be honest. There's still quite a wide variation. You're mm-hmm. right that now, fortunately, at the top of the heap are the econometricians like, I mean, David Carr does fantastic work. And I'm so grateful that he came to Berkeley and stayed at Berkeley.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and, and I know you think of the sort of the econ- econometricians or statisticians as the labor economist, and they are certainly the most respected and have the most influence in the field. But there are actually quite a few labor economists that are th- spread throughout the nation that work on um, in more institutional ways. Yeah. They might they might study unions. Mm. They might study um, sort of different kinds of policies that regulate certain markets. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily do differences in differences.
0: Right. 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 So, but, but you do you sort of feel like those are your people or do you think that way? Like I, I, I sort of always kind of wondered like, who are my people? Cause I, I never, I, my research interests have always been a little unusual, but like, um, I really, really admire the labor economists. Um, I love the commitment they have to the workers. Um, When you read these old classical guys, you know, they, uh, not to get on a tangent, but, you know, because they just think in terms of these three groups of people, the landowners, the capitalists, and the workers, it's just like, it's a huge part of the history of economics, this this big group, uh, and their overall well-being. You know, and not all of the classical economists really seem to come down. They, they sometimes have like what appears to be biases, you know, against them, you know, like maybe maybe, maybe aren't particularly sympathetic. I, I've been really surprised, honestly, how many of the classical economists talk about the poor. They, they you know, maybe 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 they maybe this isn't maybe they're just not politically correct and that's what sort of stuns me a little bit but the language of immorality around the poor amongst the classical economists is just it's really common they drink too much they're lazy and i was just kind of curious like did you notice as you were working on topics in you know poverty and labor did you ever kind of just notice that there was like morality judgment about these groups of people that like, you know, cause like, I don't, I mean, maybe, maybe that's maybe an IO, they're doing that too, but it, it seems like there's just like, during this period of time with Reagan and things, there's just really, you know, pretty intense statements made about the, the poor.
1: Right. But I didn't hear economists saying that. I... Sorry. That's okay. Okay. I... I definitely heard um, politicians say that, like yeah. Ronald Reagan went on and had the welfare queen. And actually that was, in, in my book, American Standards of Living, that was really key in getting the country to believe we didn't need a social safety net. Mm-hmm. We, had, we had a social safety net and that we therefore didn't have to worry about inequality, that people, who make more money deserve more money they work harder they're smarter and we don't have to worry the welfare queen don't you worry she's got all her bonbons i mean he was outrageously racist about it
0: yeah yeah
1: and but he he convinced the country that since we were taking care of poor people that they could go out and make all the money they wanted to right And this was actually i think a major turning point where Reagan could convince people that they could make all the money they wanted to, they deserved it. And they could have, enjoy their lives and not worry about poor people.
2: Right, 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 right.
1: But I didn't, to be honest, I didn't hear economists pushing that, but then Mm -hmm. I was working on inequality and discrimination and poverty. So um, maybe it's just the people I hung out with because we were really upset by that.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And
1: we were trying to figure out how to offset it, but we never could. Right, and so we we failed. We totally failed on working on inequality. We, to be honest, I think we weren't political enough.
0: You think there was a missed opportunity, or or what? You think you could have done something different, or if it was just?
1: I think we needed to go team up with a political scientist, but that's in retrospect. Who knows what would have happened? I have no idea. Yeah. I No, that even today, though, um, with the work that the labor economists who use RCTs and do rigorous analysis, um, even they have a hard time convincing people it's okay. The minimum wage actually has doesn't actually create unemployment Mm -hmm. or that don't worry, migration is not taking away all the good white jobs. It's like,
2: right,
1: even then, the political the people of the political side just seem to win the day it's like um and i and so actually i have started working some with some political scientists to try and understand how to take what we know on policy because i my research team at berkeley created something called the sustainable shared prosperity policy index um and the political scientists love it and they say oh good." We can use this and I said, great can you tell me how you can use it to like actually create or have an impact on policy. Mm-hmm. They said well, it's not easy, but that's what we do. Um, and so we have a network at Berkeley of people, political economy, but across discipline, not just economics and political science, but trying to figure out how to how to, you know, take research, put it into policies and then have an impact and not just right. have it sit on the shelf.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: But it's hard. I don't see uh, the uh, answers, except that I know with the climate emergency, I looked at my colleagues and I said, look, we might have failed on inequality on having the government do policies that would really help people. And now we can't fail. I said, we're killing the planet.
2: Mm-hmm. We
1: know what to do. We have technology, we have science, and we aren't going there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Real quick, I have one question. The So I found this interesting thing that you were asked or that you asked. It says, does education and then a good job allow people to achieve a middle class lifestyle and leave labor market problems behind? And you said no. And I thought that was interesting because I felt like in my labor, my grad labor class, we read Kevin Murphy and June and Larry Katz and a bunch of others where it was the big story was you know this divergence in earnings by skill and the rise in the returns to skill and i left those classes just kind of feeling like you know education really was the key to addressing Poverty, but it sounds like you've got a more you've got a slightly different, or you've kind of got your own take on it. And I was just kind of just curious. Can you tell me more about that question and why is it you think somebody might say you could sort of imagine somebody saying yes, and why you would kind of say what you said?
1: Right. Yes. There's actually a very simple answer, and actually, Larry Katz would agree with this. Okay. Um, sure. If we have a, if you have a vibrant market so there are plenty of good jobs if if you don't have any slack and actually you have an over full side on the macro side um where there the labor market is providing really good jobs worker have some power then it would be true hey let's educate everybody let's The problem in our economy is you give people a great education, you send them out into the labor market, and they may not get a good job. They might not get a job commiserate with their education and skills, and they especially are likely to run into discrimination in a slack labor market, and usually the labor market's slack. Mm-hmm. And also, as you know, the labor market power for workers has really gone down. And that's been well documented mm-hmm. by John Stiglitz, by John um, Atkinson and others. It's like, okay, look, workers don't have the power they used to have. The The, the divergence between the wages of workers and the wagers of executives has enormously um, increased mm-hmm. by 10 times. And then we have certain sectors, such as the financial sector, booming and taking over a lot of the economy. And we have the manufacturing sector shrinking. And so you say, oh, well, if I'm low income and I'm black male, what can I do to improve my life? And it's not real clear to them or to economists that if they get the education they need and the experience they need, and they toe the line. Will they get a good job and be middle class? That's not at all clear. Mm-hmm. Some may, some may not.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So some of it, I guess, like the the focus on education, independent of thinking about these structural issues, can it just kind of is it's just incorrect or not not complete or something like that.
1: Yes. You have to bring into account the state of the labor market, the state of labor power, Mm. and also if you're Black, white, male, or female.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, so, okay, so transitioning a little bit. So in 20, I'm interested in this transition that you make, these two transitions, one to to climate. That's something I want to talk about. But also before we talk about that, I'm interested in this 2017 book that you wrote, uh, Buddhist Economics. An enlightened approach to the dismal science. It, it makes me think of "Small Is Beautiful" by by Schumacher, um, and I don't want to, you know, diminish it by making comparisons. It's just that it's just so, you know, original that that uh, a a mainstream economist would kind of want to have this re envisioning of the of the discipline. So I guess I first just wanted to know, like, how did you first become interested in Buddhism? before we even get into the book.
1: Oh, so I was a practicing Buddhist actually because a meditation center opened up a 10 minute walk from my house and had the most astonishing, um, Rinpoche. And so my husband, and I said, well, why don't we just stop by and and he's of Jewish background and I grew up in mm. an a Episcopalian and we stopped by and we really liked it and just started attending and, and had friends and neighbors there. And, Um, and then I, by the way, I should never call my book Buddhist economics. Everybody thought that meant it was religious, but it wasn't, it was just economics as you said. Um, and it's actually an economics book because the Buddhists say, well, it is true. You have impermanence. So you assume impermanence or that everyone's interrelated with each other and with nature, which is a law of ecology. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's science and, that was an important part of buddhism and it always has been and then you assume in that everything's always changing
2: mm-hmm. that
1: and then you end you end up whoops just a second what happened to equilibrium well you know we're always in transition it, the world is dynamic life is dynamic right. and a part of inter, interdependence is that people care for each other they can be self-serving self-caring they should be but they also are other caring or altruistic, mm-hmm. and then um, you, you sort of bring all those together and you end up with turning the free market model on its head <laughs> because if people are altruistic and caring um, and if people care a lot about, you also define happiness very differently instead of caring it's not hedonic anymore but it's it's much more Aristotelian, where people um people's happiness is of course interrelated with everyone else's happiness and the state of nature and they're and that's because of altruism Mm. and so they're not trying to just give me give me give me give me and they actually care a lot about the human spirit that people aren't don't just, they care about relationships, about community. Right. And this is all a big part of their lives. And so, of course, they want enough income, they want to have basics, they want to have a comfortable life, a good life. But a good life isn't just materialism. Right. And it's relationships, community, human spirit, who am I as a person? What matters to me? What makes life good? Right. So the minute you do that, you do end up with a very different type of economics where the goal is actually a good life for everyone. Mm. And so I knew enough to know that this was based upon economics. We already knew. Right. So you start off with Amartya Sin. Mm. Who definitely, and he loved my book and gave me mm. a great verb. And uh, that's, that's his way of thinking. He, he was a Hindu or is a Hindu, Mm. Um, but he understood interdependence and non-materialism aspects of life and what's important. Yeah. Yeah. an opportunity, of course, cap- capabilities. But then there's also, um, you. so you start off with Amartya Sin, and then you can add climate science, which we know, or ecology. So we have ecological economics. You add that in, and then you add on top of that what we've learned from the UN, that we can reduce global suffering, Um, Mm. that's a very important part of life. And Jeffrey Sachs and his sustainable development growth work, Mm. you you sort of, they all do great work, but somewhat in their own um, bailiwigs. And so I just said, you know, we know the economics for this. So why don't we just integrate it and start off with these three assumptions and End up wanting to provide a comfortable, caring life for the whole world and take care of the planet. And of course, this was heavily influenced by the climate crisis going on.
0: Hmm. Mm. Wait. So, so is this book a turning point for you? I mean, is it like when you write it and you're thinking of these things, like you're you're changed? You've changed in your way of thinking, like about economics
1: well not really not really no what i it actually came about because i at one point was teaching econ one which is 800 students and 22 graduate students on um, teaching sections and I was really unhappy with the way econ one was taught. It was yeah. mostly free market. And then right. on the side, we'd bring in, well, there is this problem with externalities.
0: You but- barely get have time to get to it. If you don't hurt if you, the way the, the tech, the way the table of contents are structured for econ principles is you're lucky to get to any of the market failure stuff, unless you really prioritize it because you can get, you can get through I theory know, of the you may not have time.
1: Yeah, and it's like, oh, inequality. Well, that you know, oh, yeah. we actually, we know a lot about it. I mean, we see it's like this an afterthought. So, I was really upset by that, but most people teaching it are. Um, right, and so, and there are now today some more options, but in those days, there really wasn't. So, I was out walking my dog in the hills one afternoon, and I looked at him, and I was already a practicing Buddhist. I I said to my dog, I said, how would, how would Buddha have taught econ one? Mm. What would he have done differently? And my dog looked at me and he said, well, think about it. I'm sure you can figure that out. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) So I went back and I went back to Berkeley and I said, I went to the department, I said, I want to teach a seminar in Buddhist economics because I want to think more holistically about the economy and what it would mean. Because right. otherwise, I never had any time to do anything. You know, Scott. I don't know about you, but if you're teaching something, you find time for it. If yep. you're not teaching it, it rolls down the list. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: totally.
1: Yeah. So I started teaching Buddhist economics, and the seminar was really popular. Oh, I bet
0: it was so popular.
1: The loved it. It's like uh. they thought, and that's why I love Berkeley. It's like, well, wow, that's so interesting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Then actually an agent came to me and she said, Would you write a book? Can we make this into a book proposal? And would you would you write a book? I said, Well, I hadn't thought about it, but I'd consider it. Yeah. And it took off. Except we should have renamed it not Buddhist economics.
0: So that's not a good name for it? Why what's wrong with that name?
1: Because totally-
0: people thought it was like like uh Protestant economics or Christian economics or something. They they thought it was religious.
1: They did. I won't tell you how many people, media, or even book reviewers said, I don't do religion. I said, right. I don't either. I think of Buddhism is a philosophy of life.
0: Right, right, right. Right.
1: And, so- and economists got it that that I, that, you know, that I sort of knew and worked with, like Amartya Sen and Jeffrey yeah. Sass. They knew it. They understood. George Akerlof loved it. Um, but outside of that
0: yeah right
1: it it got buddhism Hmm. i don't even understand what that is
0: Hmm. but it is the appropriate word even though it's the marketing of it it's the right you do feel like that's the right word it's just the marketing of it is people get the wrong impression am i wrong
1: yeah i think you're no i think you're spot on
0: yeah 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 well so one last thing before we go um
1: oh can i just say one other thing yeah really Mm -hmm. important to me yeah. because I also worked on semiconductors with engineers Mm -hmm. and this actually was also an important part of my life. It was in the nineties. And because this is where my work and your work overlap, this is where your econometric work and teachings and my work on field work and understanding sort of how the economy is truly operating on the ground. Yeah. So, what happened was we were out doing field work paid by the Sloan and, in the Sloan Foundation studying semiconductors and fabrication plants. And the United States was way behind Japan. And we, the goal was to actually figure out how to improve fabrication. But that was around the world, not just for US. And we did that. That was great. I loved working with the um, engineering dean. And I led the economists. He led the engineers. And I learned a lot about doing field work and watching things on the ground. But what I also learned was later on, I was working with Julia Lane and some other co-authors, and they came to me and they said, look, we're going to do this administrative study of a bunch of industries, including semiconductors. But we want you and your team to help interpretation of the data. So they came and they found in the semiconductor industry, by the way, it was changing dramatically where TSMC in Taiwan was taking over fabrication. Mm. And I mean, doing great fabrication work better than any of the uh, big tech companies in the US like Intel and Motorola. And so they went in and they had great administrative data and they looked at what was happening within the semiconductor industry which firms were expanding, which firms were failing and dying out, and they did it by location. So they they had fabrication plant. But meanwhile, the US industry was changing. They were closing down fabs and they were opening up design centers only. So in the US, we were great chip designers. We would design chips and send them to TSMC for fabrication. But if you look at the data, what it shows is, in fact, the market's working really, really well, that the companies that are highly productive are expanding. And they don't have to employ as many workers and the companies that are much less productive and have lower wages, they're declining and even shutting down and going out of business. And so it was. (laughs) The interpretation was, look how competitive and great the semiconductor industry is. The market works. And I said, well, the problem is that that interpretation doesn't include the reality of the industry is restructuring dramatically and sending, we're creating design centers with very talented, high paid, highly productive designers, no fabrication, Mm. and we're closing down fabrication plants and sending them to TSMC. So it is true that we're using globalization to lower cost and to really take advantage of the US great design capabilities
2: mm. but it
1: is too bad we're closing down fabrication and because we we need to keep some fabrication in the US actually yeah. because designers need it they actually learn a lot from from the fabrication process mm. but anyway that to me is is and Julia Lane was great at this we really agreed and we wrote a book together about how if you really want to do a great analysis with administrative data, which is really wonderful to have, then you actually do need to know to combine it with some field work on the ground to really understand how is this industry working? How do you interpret? We need to know how to interpret the data because as you know, Scott, there are lots of ways to interpret any statistical results. Right. And you want to do it in a way that actually overlaps with reality.
0: Yeah. 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 Right. And you started some kind of major or something, didn't you? It was like, I was looking, it it was like a, it was something you did at Berkeley that was, that's connected to this.
1: That's right. It's called development engineering. I work, I work a lot with engineers. I like them. They're smart, savvy, and fun. Um, If you have the right ones, of course, (laughs) just like economists. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But, um you know, we, we realized that the engineers were in the lab creating these great solutions, technical solutions for a stove topper for this, whatever the problem. they had a solution in the lab. Then they'd take it out to the field in a developing country and implement it. Yeah. And then they go back to pick up the data, and nothing was working right. It's like like, like for example, in a stove top. When they came to pick up the sensors in the stovetop that had all the data they needed yeah um, the sensors were all burned mm. and they looked into why and they said the women said well the stovetop didn't work quite right so we had to reconjigger it and flip it over and you know of course the sensors got destroyed mm. and so And the economists would come in late. They'd come in at the end and say to the engineers, oh, give us your data and we'll do a great study and I'll get my PhD and we'll get into an RCT. But they'd come back and say, just a second, you didn't collect the data right. It's like, this isn't how you collect the data to do a rigorous analysis. Sorry. So, So Alice Agogino and I said, look, let's just bring it together and have them work together. And it's like a minor for PhD students. So early on, the economists get involved with data collection, both qualitative and quantitative from the bottom up, user up, and they actually learned, it's actually, you can do great data analysis early on, that builds you into a really good treatment and control trial. Mm. Um, And the engineers learned very quickly the value of economists. Oh my gosh, they do know a lot about data collection and analysis Mm they can really help us understand from day one how to improve our technology out in the field because we started making the engineers go out in the field earlier and yeah. take and take some economists or at least give the economists the data early on.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's cool. Well, so you, you move into, so you're doing that, but then you, you also have moved into this climate this economics of climate and sustainability, right?
1: Well, Scott, yeah, isn't everybody? I mean, I have a couple of little grandsons. It's like we're killing the planet. We're overheating it. Life as we know it won't be around for them if we don't quickly bring down emissions.
2: Mm -hmm. We've
1: got to stop using fossil fuel energy and transition to a livable modern economy. And we're not doing that. Not in the U.S. and not globally. 27 mm-hmm. is in progress right now. And um, and the IPCC has made it very clear. And the, we got to bring down greenhouse gas emissions by 45% by 2030. And we aren't even bringing them down yet. It's like we're slowing down, but we aren't going negative in terms of change. There's, so we have a, and and the longer we wait, the less likely it is that we can reach any goal that we care about. The economists, their cover story was forget 1.5 degrees. That's not possible. Let's just try and keep it not, let's get as far below 2% increase in global warming as we can. But 1.5 is gone. And mm-hmm. we should acknowledge that and see what we can do because we've got to move a lot faster.
2: Mm-hmm and Mm -hmm. so
1: when i saw that you know i said i've got to just focus and that happened when i was actually doing buddhist economics Um, Mm. so that that was quite a while ago
0: yeah yeah
1: And, and i just think every single person that teaches or does research or is in the university system has to think about climate and how to integrate it into the work they're doing as an example um, they don't have to do climate research, but they have to think about how can they integrate climate into their thinking, their teaching, their way of viewing life. Because right now is our existential crisis.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to end with this: when when you think about your life that you've lived as uh, as a labor economist, as a Buddhist, you know, uh, as a sort of a almost a theorist. And um, and also this this environmental economist, all these kind of the the work that you've done since your earliest times of being interested. I wanted to ask you this. Why does the work that we do as economists matter? And then secondly, what does that even mean to matter? What has mattered the most to you in your life uh, as an economist?
1: Well, mainly I think that we're economists because we love economics (laughs) it's like okay that's sort of the way we think about you know how does the world operate and from a resource viewpoint and I think the economists that I admire all of us agree we've got to think about how can we help the world do better and so that's important I think the problem is why what we do doesn't matter enough then as we've already discussed it's like why does politics trump economics and it does it seems like we know a lot we we try really hard we're well-intentioned we want to help the world and right now i want to help people on the planet and stop stop using fossil fuels and so one of the things that i've started doing and i've been doing this now for quite a while is as i work with climate groups climate justice groups to lobby for specific policies and um, specific actions in California, focusing on California because we're a climate leader. But one of the things I've learned is that once again, and I'm really understand now why politics triumphs because big oil, we, we have a big oil industry in California and they just all the time use their money to fight against us and to fight against any climate policies or, or regulations and we have fights going on all the time and they have a lot of money and we only have people and sort of intelligence, but also Scott, while we, while what we do matter is we care about honesty and transparency. We care about using data correctly. We care about being as honest as we can about our data and our findings. And, and that's who we are as economics Mm -hmm. professors. Yeah. And so it bothers me that I'll get out and I'll be at a hearing with Chevron or Exxon, and they'll just lie they'll yeah. they'll just say anything they want to, and no one and they aren't held accountable, whereas we are very, very careful yeah. trying to stay with the science and the evidence, and that's also one of the reasons that what we do should matter more
0: mm-hmm. and
1: I, and if you can tell me how to make it matter more, I'd love it.
0: <laughs> well, it has been really a pleasure uh Claire to to get to spend this hour just learning about you and and uh your thoughts on economics but also just getting to know you better. Um I, I really appreciate you giving me this time to to talk and listen.
1: Oh Scott, let me just tell you how much I appreciate all you're doing to help economists learn and to also help economists figure out how maybe we can do better and help people in the planet so thank you for all you're doing and thanks for inviting me
0: yeah thank you